many millennia ago, at the peak of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights, a group of divine beings known as the Watchers, or Sons of God, descended in an act of rebellion against their king, Yahweh. By teaching them the secret knowledge of the cosmos, they sought to wrestle dominion of the earth away from humanity. They bore children with them, and their offspring were both human and divine. These giants are the demigods of old, and the events that transpired would forever alter the course of human history. At Camp Hermon, we discuss the oddities of the ancient world and their lingering impact on our world today. Welcome. What's up, campers? Welcome back to another episode of Camp Hermon. What's up, Tori? How's it going? Hey, Chris. It's going great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm I am I'm always stoked. I always say like, "Oh, I'm I'm excited for this episode," but I'm actually I'm genuinely excited for every episode because we just have amazing guests on. I love everybody that we've talked to um so far has been just absolutely amazing. And Tori, today, which it'll be a week behind, you guys are going to hear this. Mm, well, you don't know it's next week, but we're recording a week in advance. But on today is our one-year anniversary of releasing our first episode with Aww. Dr. Judd. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Um, so, yeah, definitely super stoked uh, for that. And we've got a guy coming on who has a pretty incredible story i'm not going to tell it because we've got him on to tell it but we've got michael uh, gagliardi coming on tory and i feel like this is going to be another kind of roller coaster of an episode as far as just the ups and downs of what i've heard uh, from his story so super super stoked for that it's going to be it's going to be interesting to say the least um tori the show after the show so for anybody who is a member we are going to be having our after show which is campfire chat with chris and tori so stick around from that if you're not a member and you want to check that out go to campermon.com it's like what tori six bucks a month to become a member Exactly. Actually, five ninety nine. Yeah. Oh yeah, not even six dollars. Not even six whole dollars. Yep. Okay. Without further ado, uh, Michael, we appreciate you coming on, sir. How are you tonight? Um, great. Doing doing fine. A little warm today in the Coachella Valley. We're still at a hundred degrees, but uh, <laughs> we're we're looking forward to uh, the winter season, which is basically our our everyone else is summer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's it what's it like there in the summer or in the winter i'm sorry uh in the in the winter 70s 80s beautiful beautiful and then in the summer we can get as high as 125 wow. degrees Goodness. like, like iraq yeah. <laughs> that's crazy well if you've ever been to israel it looks just like israel oh, wow You've ever been there? The Coachella Valley looks just like Israel. We got date groves and and uh, the mountains and the same kind of vegetation and looks exactly like the moon. Wow. You guys had some crazy weather there recently, didn't you? In the Coachella Valley. 
Yeah, we had that hurricane come through, and even though the winds didn't really do anything, it was kind of windy one of the days, but uh, it dumped a lot of rain, and it flooded our entire valley and ruined golf courses, and oh, it made a mess. There was debris four feet thick with sand and snow mm-hmm. on the streets, and yeah, it was a mess. It was a mess. In fact, it was on CNN and Fox News, and, and it was our town. Was the town that I live in that they were showing the worst damage? Wow. So yeah, it was pretty crazy. Goodness. We're pretty much all over it now. They got pretty much everything um, cleared away. There's still mounds of sand on to, on the sides of the road that they haven't determined what they're going to do with, but uh, everything's cl- pretty much clear now. Was that? I heard that was a God's judgment on the Coachella Festival. Yeah, there was. Uh, I think. Uh, I think it was one of the gay parades was going on that uh, that week, that same couple of days. Man. So, you know, take that for, for what <laughs> you think, you know? Right. Uh, wow. Well, uh, Michael, I'd like to jump into your story. So you, you've written um, a two-volume series about your story um, and uh, the title for anybody that's interested, and you can find them on Amazon is Devil Take the Hindmost, A True Story of Terror. And so you're a boy, you survived 12 plus years living with your mother who was uh, demonically possessed. And when you reached out to me, I think one of the things you had said in the email um, was that it was the the worst demon possession in Canadian history. Yeah, I've uh, I've done the research, and um, there's been a couple of accounts in in Canada over the years. One more recently, in I think 2009 or something like that in Saskatchewan, but uh, there's never been one that's been so prolonged. And because it wasn't documented. I mean, it was covered up by the local authorities. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to make of it. And we lived in a small town, you know, in the 70s and 80s in Canada. And, uh, you know, that that time, no one talked about anything during the 70s and 80s. You know, everything was good. You know, you got a shiny car in the driveway. And, you know, nobody talked about anything. You know, no, it's not like today where, if somebody, you know, said something was going on, you'd have all kinds of, uh, you know, CPS at the door, you know, and it'd be on the news. There was nothing like that back in that day. So um, considering we lived in a small town of only 4,500 people, you know, very isolated, uh, 110 or 15 miles from the nearest city, which was Toronto. You know, uh, we were very isolated and uh, it was pretty much kept under wraps. And, you know, it was what it was. My mother terrorized the neighbors. You know, she set the house on fire several times. The fire department was there. Um, She was going knocking on the neighbors' doors, telling them in weird voices that she's going to cut their heads off. You know, and that's uh, all the neighbors. And the cops were over our, our house all the time, all the time. And nothing was ever done um, several times. Uh, and you'll hear this in my story tonight. 
several times. She was taken to the mental institution uh, in a straitjacket where several people showed up, bound her in a straitjacket, took her away. And then within three months, they brought her back. And one of those times, she she uh, attempted murder of my sister, and it was witnessed by the neighbor. So very bizarre set of circumstances, you know, and uh, but uh, stuff like that would have never flown in a day like today. But um, unfortunately, you know, nothing was ever done. And the protocols back then were more or less to make it go away because they didn't understand it, didn't know what it was, you know, and uh, the children, you know, my sister and I suffered for it, you know. I, I'm interested, Michael, to hear about um, your mother's life and her her upbringing and what led what you feel led to the possession? Well, that's a great question. Um, about my mother's life, I know nothing. I know nothing about her. Because even though I lived with her, we didn't talk. Because when I was a small child, this is when all this started. <clears throat> the, the, my sister's seven years older than me, and she told me that... Uh, that when my mother was, I think she was 18 or 19, um, her father, who she dearly loved, who I'm named after, his name was Michele, which is Michael in Italian. Um, he was killed in a very serious accident uh, on a train, on a train track. Uh, he was probably drinking, train hit him, cut his legs off, and he died. Anyway. <clears throat> Um, this was before I was born, and my my sister tells me that um, my mother loved her father so much. So, I mean, she adored him. And when I was born, you know, in around three years old, I remember, you know, the first act incident happened. But I remember in those early days that my mother and her sister was, she had a younger sister and a younger brother. Her, her younger sister was very much into the occult. And I believe, I believe that this is what happens because I heard the talk when I was a child, I heard the word seances and stuff like that. Because back in the seventies, that was the thing that was going on in the early seventies, <clears throat> you know, seances and swinging and all this kind of stuff. Those were the things. And, I remember my mother, you know, talking to her sister, which she used to live downstairs because we had like a double, it was like a double house. We have a lot of those on the East Coast, you know. And um, I remember them talking about a seance. So we believe, and it's more than likely true, is that my mother, who was so heartbroken, she wanted to reach out to talk to her, her beloved father, and since her sister was very much into the occult, um, this is what they did. And this was the invitation. Because when this started happening, this is when things started to happen in our house. They were, it started out, you know, I don't know how much you know about demonic possession, but demonic possession always starts off slow. It always starts off, there's an invitation. There's always an invitation, be it Ouija board, be it uh, 
you know, some sort of necromancy, you know, which seances are. There's always that. And then, you know, when the demons show up, now they have invitations. So they have a right to be there because they've been invited. So what happens then is they begin to pester, you know, the victim or the host. Um, examples would be, and I heard this growing up, scratching inside the walls, banging inside the walls, banging in the attic. Yeah, uh, my mother complained when I was very little of hearing voices, you know, telling her to do various things. And then the first accident happened. The first incident happened. I think I was probably three and a half. Um, uh, usually, you know, being a little Italian boy, because uh, my father was from Italy, um, you know, you have a soup, you know, for lunch, it's called pasta fasule. And it's like what American children would know, like star soup you know, with like a dollop of ricotta in it, something like that. And I, you know, Italian children, they have that every day. They have that every day for a while. So my mother would, would call me to the table and it would always be sitting at the table. At this one time she called me, I came, I sat at the table, it wasn't there. And she came up behind me and dumped the whole scalding hot um, uh, pot of uh, pasta fasule all down mm. my shoulder. Whoa. I was screaming, screaming in, in agony. Um, she had very little response. I remember this very, very, I mean, you wake up when something happens to you as a child. You, your senses become alive. You know, children aren't these, you know, they just walk around playing and stuff and they're not aware of things. Everybody remembers things when they were little, you know, very, very vividly. And so anyway, she called a taxi. She never held me. She never touched me. She never kissed me. She never comforted me. We got into a taxi. We went to uh, the doctor. Um, I remember waiting in the, in the waiting room and my shoulder just burning. You know, after you get a burn, it's, you've got that you know, burning sensation, you know, that stinging. I remember just being in, in agony. She never hugged me, never touched me, never did anything. And then I don't remember the doctor's visit, but I do remember sitting in the waiting room. And then we went back home, you know, whether they patched me up or whatever, I don't remember. But when we went back home, that's when I kept my eyes on mom because she awakened something in me because I knew it wasn't, it wasn't um, an accident. It wasn't an accident. And from the very, like I said, from that very early age, I was probably three, three and a half probably more than like three and a half, um, I, I noticed, you know, looking back, I wasn't conscious of it then, but looking back, she was very disconnected from me. You know, like I said, never touching, never holding, never nurturing, any of that. So that was the first incident that absolutely woke me up. And I began to look at her, like, you know, watching her, watching her walk across the room, yeah, I remember watching Sesame Street, you know, and then walking her, watching her walk across the room because you, you associate that something like that happening, you look right. for it again, yeah. you know, you know, like getting burned on the stove. You know where the stove is, you know it's in the kitchen, you know that when that thing's red, you, if you touch it, it's going to hurt. So the same with my mother coming up behind me, I had this proclivity to be very aware of her whereabouts. And and that never ended. Gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, oh, that's thank you. terrible. And where where was your father at that time? Uh, he was 
he was working and l- let me premise uh, let me premise the story because everybody asks about my father where's my father well my father was absent for the whole time growing up um number one and i've for- i've forgiven him for it and we've talked a little bit about it but number one my dad was a refugee from world war ii uh, he had his own PTSD. He watched his father being shot at by the by the Nazis running across the field. Um, you know, they were trying to get their donkey into a cave and a bomb went off and blew the donkey's guts all over him and his brothers and sisters. You know, uh, so he, and, you know, he was in a refugee camp for four years. He came over to Canada, didn't speak uh, English at all. And he learned here. So he had his own his own issues, and I think the way he dealt with that was being away from home, was just working himself. That's how he dealt with it. So, you know, from now until I was 19, he was absent. He was never there. He was always working. He was always working. Gosh, I'm so sorry. And, I mean, not even on a spiritual level, but, like, I can only imagine what that would do to a little kid, you know, not being able – well – I mean, not only like not being able to trust your mom, right? But like to not have like the comfort, but you know, and I don't know, so so many layers to that, right? right. But like even beyond right. that, you know, to feel like you have to actually be like watching her because like she might be trying to hurt you, you know, like. Yes, and that never went away. That never went away for the whole time I was living with her and up until, you know, eight, 19 years old when I left. Wow. Um, and it only began to get worse. So after that incident happened, <clears throat> that's when, you know, I, I, I started to go through a little trauma as a child. And I, I would sit, at, I would lie in bed and I would just cry. And then somebody would come in and tell me to be quiet. And I would just keep myself just so reserved and just crying by myself. <clears throat> and I would hear, I would always be listening. You know, I'd always be listening and I would hear my mother and her, my aunt, talking about seances and all this. Stuff. I never knew what the words were until, you know, 15 years later. I said, oh, geez, I, now I remember everything that they used to talk about. I remember certain words because of that one incident. It made me so aware and awake, you know, because now I, I, I had a foe in the house and I had to beware of her, you know, and. From then, we, you know, in that same apartment, uh, she was beginning to say that she was hearing voices. And, you know, this is something, you know, I don't remember her saying that, but when we moved, we moved from there and we moved into a house, you know, we moved into this house. And from there, that's when things began to escalate even more. She was saying that, um, that she was seeing little people running around the house. And that uh, she was hearing voices and hearing scratching and knocking on, on in the house, and I remember hearing that as a little as a little kid. But I didn't. Th- I thought it was somebody in the house doing, it, you know. And as I recall, you know, I I re- began to recall those times. I remembered. Oh yeah, I heard that stuff all the time, but I never knew what it was. You know, it didn't. It didn't really. And you know, that's one of the things that God protected me from was the sheer terror, even though I did go through sheer terror, but it could have been way worse for me if I understood what was going on. So in this house in Toronto, this stuff started to happen. And then 
very shortly after we had some sort of family dynamic happen between my mother's side of the family and my my dad's side of the family or just my dad and something happened and we packed up and we moved 120 miles away to this small little isolated town in northern Ontario Canada where it's freezing cold and there's nothing to do it's just tiny little town of 4,500 people in the middle of nowhere way up up north and but my dad still worked down in Toronto so he would have to drive all the way back two hours and sleep in his truck to work down there and then come up on the weekend so that just didn't seem you know now that I look back on that it just didn't seem right some sort of family dynamic happened and I know because our family never came to see us when we moved that was it no one ever came to see us ever again you know and when I moved to that house that's where I started kindergarten and that's where things really started to escalate so for the next three or four years my mother was seeing things hearing things and now she began to talk to herself and she began to go into trances and and listen to the uh, like she would sit in her chair she did this for over a decade just sit in her chair and have the PBS station on back then in Canada when you put the PBS station it just had music on it so it was like a you know 24 hour music station and she would just be singing at the top of her lungs and and whistling at the top of her lungs in like perfect and you know she would sing and know all the words to everything and sing and whistle in perfect pitch and once again, I was, I was little, I was growing up. I didn't recall that until later on. I went, my gosh, when I started to research demonic possession cases, I came across the Roland Doe case, which was one of the most serious documented cases in St. Louis, I believe in the 40s. And the same thing happened to the kid. He started singing along with songs that he didn't know and whistling and singing in perfect harmony and never ha having pitch perfect. And when I read that, I was like, oh my God. See, I, this is later on in life in my thirties is when I started to realize, you know, because I totally forgot about everything that happened. I forgot about it on yeah. purpose, I left it behind. But I began to research stuff and go, what, what is wrong with me? Because I was starting to manifest all these issues, you know, but, I'll, I'll go there in a minute. Uh, let, me, let me take you through the story. So we're, we're in this small town. And for the next three or four years, my mother starts, it starts to increase. It starts to get worse. She's talking to herself all the time. She's whistling. She's maniacally laughing, bursting out into laughter in the, for nothing. We'd be sitting there and it would scare me because she just burst out into laughter just hysterically and then climb up just completely climb up again and then start talking to herself and whispering whispering to herself and that went on for it so now i'm completely conditioned by this this has been going on since kindergarten grade one grade two grade three grade four and now it, it jumps up to the next level now she's talking in multiple voices and what I assumed as a child was 
um, various languages because I couldn't understand a thing she was saying. And it wasn't gibberish because now that I can recall, I recall the, 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 the gate of her speech. When I, when I, that gate of the speech was so imprinted on me that when I heard the transcripts, the actual audio for that Annalise Michelle case, I don't know if you ever heard that one in Germany, in Klingenberg. Well, they had like 67 tapes of this demonically possessed girl. And she spoke in this voice that was totally un unbelievable that could not be her own vocal cord. And it sounded just like my mother. And she, I heard when I heard those tapes for the first time, I heard my mother speaking, even though it was in German. It was in German. I heard the same gate of speech, wow. the same thing, that same hatred, the same scatology. They speak in scatological terms. They speak in hatred terms. They blaspheme, you know? And she was saying all these things in other languages. And she began to have these conversations like with multiple, multiple people switching from voices in an instant, in a complete instant, like, like uh, call and response. She asked something and then some, some, some other voice would answer within split seconds. And then she bust out, you know, hysterically laughing, and then go into a song, and start and start going like this. So th this this took to a whole nother level, and she would do this all day long in the chair, sit in her chair, and all she did was eat. She was obese by this time; she was only four foot ten. And she was probably 210 pounds. She was eating us out of house and home like an animal. There was nothing feminine about her. Her femininity absolutely went out the window. She was obese. She reeked like hell. And I never had a conversation with my mother, ever, since when I was a child to all her growing up. This madness continued day after day after day. And soon as nighttime came, this is what happened. Soon as the sun would go down, she'd get out of her chair, go into her room, and then all of a sudden I would hear all this banging. And you know, in Canada, you know, we have subfloors because we have basements. So you know, if you hit your heel on a subfloor, you can hear it all throughout the whole house, you know, or you hit on the walls, you know, it echoes through the whole house. And we had a very small house, it was only 11 or 1200 square feet, you know. And so all this banging was going on and it sounded like children wrestling or people wrestling, you know, two or three different people. And I, I, would, I would be just out in the living room going, what the hell? And then I would just run in there really quick, which was only five or six steps around the corner and her, because her door was first. And I'd open the door, I'd whip it open. And she'd be lying there on her bed with the, with the covers pulled up to her eyes and her eyes would be, like, like, like big saucers. And I'd, be, I'd say, what's going on? What's going on? And she wouldn't say a word to me. One time when I did that, she said to me, Satan's jumping from the ceiling onto my chest because she was screaming. She was screaming, you know? And this happened, this happened till probably midnight. And from that time on, I think maybe I was between seven and nine years old. I got so afraid 
that I began to sleep with a hockey stick. And I took my dresser drawer and I weighed all my dresser drawers down with bricks, as many bricks as I could fill it. And I pushed it against the door every night. And I slept in the fetal position. And I slept in that position for over a decade until the springs started popping up where my shoulder rested, where my hip rested, where my knee rested, and where my ankle rested, because I was in the same position all night, every day, and I never moved. And I had that hockey stick. I had a grip on my hockey stick. And every night she tried to get in my room. I would hear the door. And she'd try to get in. And when she realized she couldn't get in, and I would hear her stomping down the hallway, screaming, ah! and then slam into her room, and then banging, and then there'd be silence for a few hours. Michael, did you have? Um, did you, you mention? Did you mention a sister? You had siblings. Yeah, yeah, I had one sister who was seven years older. Okay, than me. I'm assuming she was in the house. Yeah, she was in the house. I grew up with my sister, but I barely ever saw her because she was older. She had put a lock on her door from the inside and she lived in a room. She would pop out, grab some food, go right back in and, and lock the door. So she, I never saw her and we grew up together for a decade. I hardly ever saw her just in passing, you know, when whoever felt was you know safe enough to, you know, walk through the house and get something or, or whatever. She was just in total protection mode and not it sounds like she wasn't a protective uh older older sister kind of maybe she looking out for herself yeah she was she was in survival mode we both were you know and during this time you know my mother was ate all the food in the house so i think by seven or eight years old i was stealing food so in canada you know you have the summertime everybody's got a garden we had huge gardens and nobody had fences so i would go into gardens you know pick a a head of lettuce and then go down to the creek which was right one house away from us wash it in the water and eat it like an apple and i did that for 10 years and when it was winter time i went and stole lunches out of kids out of kids' lunches at school, and they never caught me. I remember that there'd be announcements on whoever's stealing lunches in, you know, period B, room four, or whatever, you know, please stop it. And it went on for years, and no one ever caught me. And I stole food, you know, and I did my own laundry. By the time I was seven years old, I was doing my own laundry, or earlier. I don't even remember. I just remember that by at least seven years old, I was doing my own laundry, Gosh. you know. By this time, I think I was, I think I was about 10 years. I think this was 1978 or 79. I was in school. I was sitting in the classroom and all of a sudden there was a knock at the door and there was a policeman and a couple of people in suits and stuff standing there. And the teacher went, opened the door and they called my name. So I went, I went to the door and they said, uh, you know, this man's going to take you, take you home. And I recognized him. He was my neighbor. So I said, okay. So I had no idea what was going on. I got in the car and we're driving and he tells me, he says, Michael, there's been an accident. And I said, I said well, what, what, what's happened? And he said, your mother tried to kill your sister with a butcher knife. And I, was, you know, I wasn't shocked at all. But when I got home, 
you know, when I got home, he dropped me off at home. They lived right beside us. So they, you know, we got home and my sister had told me that uh, my sister came, or my mother came lunging at her with a big butcher knife saying that she was a witch and she had to kill her. And only because that morning I left all the doors open, you know, in Canada, we have mud rooms. If you're from the East coast and you have snow, you have what's called a little mud room. Well, I left the mud room door open and the door to the outside open. So my sister told me if you hadn't left those doors open, mom would have killed me. And she ran outside and my mother was chasing her around the car with a butcher knife, you know, like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And the neighbors saw it and they called the police. So the police came and they, this isn't the first time. And then they took her, not the first time the cops got there, but this was the first time they took her away to the mental institution in a straitjacket. So they took, they took her away. And, you know, my, my sister was like, she was in shock. Um, I don't remember much about, you know, how we were living at that moment, you know, in the weeks after, but about three months later, I think it was exactly three months later, we were informed that she was coming back home. So how do you get, how do you witness someone try to kill one of the household members, a child, and then you're allowed to come back to the house? I mean, go figure. And we're, I'm a minor still. You know, I can't remember if my sister was 18 at the time or whatever. That might have been the, the sticky point there, but I'm not sure. But uh, we heard that she was coming home. My sister took off. She went and lived with my grandmother 120 miles away back down in Toronto. So now there's just me and my mother and my dad's absentee. And this is where it all began to ratchet up. So in those next couple of years, not only was she talking to herself she had begun this thing that she was doing every day. She would sit in her chair. She would be having these conversations, like multitasking, having these conversations, you know, and then answering in different voices and then lifting her leg up and drop deading her leg. She'd lift it up, drop it like that. So it would bang on the floor. And she would do this from sunup till sundown. And then I think it was just around the same time she began to take a log and was hitting herself in the chest until she was all bloody and red. Her chest was all bloody and red. And she would do this all day long. In fact, when summer came, I would leave, go spend a day at a friend's house, and I wouldn't want to come home. And I'd spend the night in the park. And I'd be gone for like three days. And I would come home. And as I'm driving in the driveway on my bike, I can hear the thuds from outside because all our windows were open. I could hear the thuds from outside and I would park my bike, walk in, walk in. And there she was, bang, 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 whacking herself in the chest, you know, all bloody or shirts, all bloody, you know, and she'd be whacking herself in the chest with a log, you know, and then at nighttime, here she goes, she'd go into her room, start screaming, banging, banging, smashing things crashing around and every once in a while I would get so fed up I would run in there because I wanted to beat her up at this time I was getting big you know I was getting tall you know 
this was by the time I was 16 years old, this was happening on a regular basis. It was happening every day and it never stopped. It never let up. You know, there was a few hours in the middle of the night where there was silence. But other than that, there was screaming, banging, whistling, laughing, talking in voices. And this hitting herself thing went on for years, at least four years, you know. And she would throw everything that I owned when I was gone. She would throw it in the fireplace and the fireplace would catch on fire, you know, and burn all the And the fire department would have to come and it would be in the paper and everybody would talk about, oh, did you hear about that house almost caught on fire? And this happened time after time after time after time. I never owned anything as a child. I never had any toys. I never had anything because she burned everything. She put everything in the fireplace, you know, and it went up. And I mean, she just packed the fireplace until everything caught on fire. And then the, you know, the fire department would have to come. And I remember one time I came home and I had to call the fire department and the fire department came and they came in to, to put the fire out. And my mother was right there whacking herself with the thing and never stopped. And no one said a word. No one said a word. Wow. <laughs> I was like, I was like, it was shocking. Why do you think that was? What? Why do you think it was kind of covered up or people ignored it? Well, you know, like I said before, uh, you know, I talked to a guy. I did an interview with a guy who was a... Uh, and I'm not Catholic by no means. This was just a guy who called me and we ended up talking. He said, I told him my story. He said, I was a Catholic priest in Canada, in Ontario during the 70s. And he said, I can attest to you right now that the protocol was that if it went beyond their, beyond the hospital's diagnosis, like mental illness or something like that, it was more than mental illness. You know, there was supernatural things, voices, um, languages. Uh, she even, she was predicting the future all the time, telling me and my sister things that were going to happen. It, one of them was before I was born. She, she told her family that Kennedy was going to get assassinated, you know, and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it ticked all the, 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 the boxes of, of demonic possession. But in the 70s, like I said, if it went past the diagnosis, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how, how to clarify it because if they were to recognize it as demonic possession, now we've got to change the books. You know, this is demonic possession. And I don't know if, you, if, you, if you've done any research, but there were a lot of possessions in the 70s. There was a lot of stuff going on in the 70s, you know, and, and that's, what they, that's what they did. You know, it, it, it went beyond their diagnosis. And the only thing they could do was ignore it and cover it up. And this is what the local police department did. This is what the mental institution did. In fact, when I was researching to do my book, which I, which I wrote over COVID, by the way, I said, you know what? I'm going to try and get my mother's records. So I called the mental institution. I said, hey, uh, can I talk to archive? Archives answered. Uh, the, lady, the lady there, I said, listen, I'm looking for uh, this lady's name. And can I get, I'm the son, can I get the record? And she says, oh, well, what year was it? I said, it would have been from the 70s and the 80s. And she goes, oh, well, we don't keep that stuff. But she goes, uh, just let me try anyway. What's the name? So I give her the name. I can, I can hear her. 
you know, I can hear her clacking literally on the computer board. And then, and then she says to me, well, that's odd. We kept all our files and their archives off campus. So I said, oh, great. She says, okay, well, here's the protocol. You have to fill out a paper, you pay $35, and then we send it to you in the mail. I said, great, great. She said, I'll call you in a week. So I hung up the phone. The, the mistake that I made was not getting the lady's name. But I waited a week. I waited two weeks, nothing. I ended up calling back. I asked for archives. A lady answered the phone. Wasn't the same lady. And I said, I'm looking for the, the uh, records for this, for this woman, the 17th I said, well, we don't have those. And I said, yeah, but if you look in your computer, the lady said, we have them. She said, no, we don't have those. We don't have those records. We don't have those records at all. She stone-faced wow. me. And I was like, because they know if you're looking for archived records, something's up. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Something le something legal or there's there's some you know digging and diving going on. And they don't want that because they know they made they made mistakes in the 70s and 80s. They probably were afraid of uh, a lawsuit or something if they uh, kind of mishandled um, their treatment of your mom. Yes, yes. And, you know, she had a general doctor and, you know, they gave her medication and all. I mean, two times they took her to, to the mental institution. I'll tell you about the other time. So th this is getting close to the end now where I'm, uh, you know, I'm in high school. It's just me and my mother. I can't deal with, it, with this anymore. You know, this is happening every day. I can't sleep. I have insomnia. My grades are failing. And I just can't do this anymore. And I'm thinking that either she's going to kill me or I have to kill her. And honest to God, that was my thinking at that time. It was either going to be me or her, you know, because I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything better. I grew up in this from, from day one. You know, I didn't know anything better than this. It never came across my mind to run to school and go, hey, something's not right at my house. Because I never knew the difference, you know? And people always ask me that. Why didn't you say something? I didn't know anything was wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, the cops had been at my house a hundred times. If they didn't know something was wrong, why should I suspect something is wrong? You know what I mean? You know? So here's what happened when they took her away the second time. And then that was it. Um, one, one summer afternoon, I came home. I was coming home on my bike. And by this time, I told my dad, I said, there is no food in the house ever. She eats like, a, like an animal. She eats like an animal. So he had to put a big, huge chain on the freezer downstairs. And we had to put everything in the freezer and put a big chain on it. I mean, a heavy-duty semi-truck chain put on it with a great big lock on it. And, you know, <laughs> you know it was so inconvenient. But, you know, I continued stealing and continued, you know, eating vegetables out of gardens, which I do to this day. I'm a vegetarian to this day because I never lost that, you know, because I had been doing it for so long. But um, I was coming home and there's, I parked my bike and I was going downstairs. Where there's our basement. There's two ways in. There's a way from inside the house. You go through the lobby or the, the, um, the snow room. 
you know, and you go downstairs and you're in the basement, or you can come in from outside. You go downstairs and then you open the door and you're in the basement. So I come, I'm, I, I park my bike and I go downstairs and I open the door and I look over and I see my mother there with a hacksaw trying to saw the, the chain off the refrigerator. And the only thing I could say, I yelled out, hey, I yelled out, hey, and she was still bent over and she looked at me. She turned around with her hair all on her face. Let me give you a visual of what this woman looked like at this point. She's, she's morbidly obese. She's four foot 10. She has her hairs all outgrown. So it's in her, in her eyes like this. Her tongue is all cut up on the both sides because all her teeth are broken. Every one of her teeth in her mouth was broken. Getting punched, punching herself. I, I have no idea, but all her teeth were broken and she was chewing her tongue and she would, she would do this. So as I was walk by, she'd go uh, like a demoniac. And her tongue was all chewed up and bloody all on both sides. And I could see her teeth. All her teeth were broken. All her molars, everything was broken. Her front teeth, were they were all chipped. And it, if you notice in the Annalise Michelle case, this is another thing. She had all her teeth were chipped. They were all chipped and broken because she was bashing her head on things and you know, all this crazy nonsense. So, and so she turns around, her hair's all in her eyes, and she growls at me like an animal. And I mean, for, you know, she's four foot ten. She, she had a very, very, uh, you have short vocal cords when you're four foot ten, you know. Um, she had a very high women's voice, you know, from what I remember. But um, she growled at me, and then she ran upstairs. I chased her upstairs, and at this time, I am now 16 or 16 and a half, and I'm over six feet tall and about 130 pounds. So I'm fast, agile. She beat me up the stairs. She ran through the house, went to her room, slammed her door so hard that all the windows were going. <laughs> and I stood in front of her door. And I'm not kidding you. All I heard was the door beginning to crack as she began to lean against the door. It was bowed out like this, bowed out. And I went to, to you know, to, to turn the knob and the doorknob wouldn't, wouldn't uh, move. And I assumed that she was standing with her back to it, you know, pushing against, pushing against it with the legs and then holding the doorknob with the back of her hand. But, you know, I'm like 16 or 17 at this point and I'm strong and I couldn't get the, the door handle to move. And I could hear her breathing like an animal, just like an animal. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I was so drawn to this. I was like, this is it. This is it. She's going to either kill me or I'm going to kill her. And and I remember just waiting for a second, and then the door cracked as she, the pressure went off the door, and the door cracked back in like this. You could hear it. You could physically hear it, hear it cracking in because it was, uh, it was uh, like one of those hollow doors, you know. But it was wood grain, so you could hear the grain splintering, you know. And I saw the doorknob relax, so I kind of wrung my hands like this. I opened the door, and we met face to face. Like our eyes were locked. She was snarling at me and her eyes were just black bulbs. They were just black dots. And 
you know, I hate I hate to mention this part because it sounds so cheesy and it sounds like a C rated horror movie. You know, they say, well, their eyes go all black. She had no pupils. She had no whites of her eyes. It was just all black. It was all black. And she lunged at me while she was growling. I ran. I ran out. I ran outside because I left the I left the doors open on purpose. I always did that. Now. I always left the doors open. So I ran outside. She did not follow me outside. All of a sudden, I heard the door slam again in the windows. So now I'm standing on the driveway and I'm in complete shock about what I saw because I was just like two feet away from her. I could see I could see her eyes. We locked eyes. And I'm sitting there going, <laughs> and I couldn't talk. And I, was, I didn't know what to do, but I knew that that was a Saturday and I know that my dad was in town. So I reached in, we had a phone that was right inside the lobby. So when you go in the mud room, you open the door and it's right there, it was right there. And I grabbed it and fortunately we had a long table on it and I went outside on the porch and it took me 15 or 20 minutes to, because we had the dial up back then, you know, because we're talking, you know, early 80s, we had the dial up phone. And it took me 15 or 20 minutes to get the dial phone because I couldn't get my finger in the right. And if you do one number wrong, it doesn't go through. You have to dial it all the way around, you know, or it doesn't go through. And I couldn't do it. And finally, after 15 minutes or so, I got it open. And I got on the phone and uh, this lady answered the phone and I knew my dad was there. And I was going, <laughs> and I couldn't say my dad's name. And I heard her yell, Emmanuel, because that's my dad's name. He got on the phone and I was still stuttering stuttering um he said what's wrong what's wrong what's wrong and i couldn't say anything he says okay i'm coming over and i knew he was about a, a mile away so he was there within a minute and he, he pulls in the driveway he you know he's he's upset he's like what's going on what's going on i couldn't say anything and i just pointed i just pointed inside he started to go to the door i walked right behind him Soon as he opened the door from the mudroom that went into the living room, my mother was standing there. She grabbed him by the shoulders, threw him down, and began clawing at his face, growling like an animal, and just clawing at her face. And I was just sitting there like, <gasps> you know, because my dad was five foot eight, you know, 150, 160 pounds back then, you know, and I'm looking at him and I'm like, Oh my God, she's like beating him up. She's scratching his face. And he manages to get out from under her and he runs outside and I run right after him. He's standing out in the driveway and he is visibly shaken. He is visibly shaken. And I'm like, my gosh, I've never seen my dad shaken like this. Because what he just experienced, he knew that that wasn't her, you know? And, and when he was outside, I still had the phone outside. So he called the police department the police department called the mental institution. They came back out. They all came. All these, all these people came. They went into my mother's room. My mother's um, screen window where the screen was open was right by the front door. So I was standing just out on the driveway. I could hear. I could hear the policemen. It was the policemen or the, the uh, mental institution people. I could hear them talking to her. And she was saying, I heard her in a normal voice. I, I don't know why you're here, officer. And I like heard my mother talk for like the first time. I heard my mother's voice. 
she was the only female in the room, you know, and I heard my mother's voice just talking like Norma. And I was like, what the hell? You know, so they bound her up. They took her away. I felt some relief, although I was completely in shock for the next couple of days afterward. I was so shocked. I don't even know if I went to school. I have no recollection of that. But um, within a couple of months, my dad informed me she was coming back. They were releasing her. And she was coming back. And I just about lost my mind. I just about lost my mind. I made plans. I made plans to leave Canada and come to California. And that's book two. That's where book two starts off. But uh, that when, when she came back, I had to leave. I had to leave. But I stayed there for a few, for a few, I think it was a few months before I was there a few months with her. And I'm telling you, the second she walked in the door, when I saw her, she walked in the door, she walked right by me. She looked at me with just this glazed look on her face, never said a word, went into the kitchen, went scrummaging around looking for food and stuff, and then went right back into her chair and started hitting herself. And the whole thing started all over again. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do that. I was freaking out. That's when I started like staying overnight at parks and stuff. And, and I made a plan. That's where I made a plan to come to California. And I had four or five other guys that were going to come with me because we were in a band together. We started a band and this is what we wanted to do. And this was my ticket out. By the time, by the time the date came when I was about to leave, everybody chickened out. And I went to see my mother one last time. My dad had sold the house. My dad had sold the house and got my mother an apartment uh, in a neighboring town about a half, a half an hour away. And I went to see her one last time before I was going to leave. And that one last time is the beginning of how I start the book two. And I'll tell you about it because it's kind of fascinating. I, my dad showed me. We pulled up. I, I think it was like, a, it was in April. There was still snow on the ground, but everything was a sloshing mess. And uh, he said, there's the door right there. Go up to the top. And it's the apartment on the right-hand side. I went up the stairs. She lived above, uh, like on a main street, above a store. You know, one of those apartments that are above a store. I knocked on the door. She opened the door. She never looked at me. It's as if she knew I, I was coming. She, she turned around, walked away. I walked in. I was like, okay. I walked in. I followed her. She sat on the bed, on her bed. I sat on the bed, like within a couple of feet of her. I was really wary of her, you know. I came to say goodbye, you know. And she leaned over. She pulled out uh, um, a drawer. She had a letter. She gave me the letter. She lied down on the bed. And as soon as she lied down on the bed, and then here she goes, starts talking. And I said, that's it. I've had it. I'm done. I walked out of there. I went downstairs. I got in the car. And within the next week, I was, I was on a plane and in California. So just to wrap up this part of the story, I was in California for 12 days. And in that 12 days, I met, I met my future wife and while I was at her her house 
I got a phone call from my cousin. And they said, we have to inform you that your mother passed away. And I said, I said, and I wasn't shocked by no means whatsoever. I said, what, uh, what day did she pass away on? And they said, well, she was, they found her a week after she died because the neighbors were complaining of the smell because she was decomposing in the apartment. And she died, she died of a heart attack of atherosclerosis because she ate herself to death. To death. And when they told me, they said, well, she probably died on this day because they figured decomposition was, she was a week into decomposition and it, it landed on the day that I left. Wow. So it was like a, a ringing of the hands, the deed's been done. And uh, my mother died at 46 years old, no gray hair, a young 46 years old. Wow. Michael, what, what did the letter say that she gave you? Well, that I'm not going to say because that's going to be in another okay. book because I read the letter and I dismissed the letter because it was a bunch of gobbledygook nonsense. But I know now that it's not <clears throat> because there were some interesting um, uh, biblical secrets in, in the letter. And um, in the last I've moved probably, I don't know, five or six times in the last 10 years. It's in a box somewhere and I don't know where it is. And I still haven't unpacked because my life has been a shambles. Everybody, everybody asks me, you know, oh, so when you left for California, you must have been so relieved it was over. And I said, not at all. That's when it all started because that's when my PTSD kicked in. And then I started having, you know, from my childhood issues, I started, you know, the problems you have as a child, they become big adult issues. And then I began having insomnia and horrible nightmares and all of this stuff. And I was like, what is wrong with me? You know, and it wasn't for, and then I had serious depression and I was in lockdown for suicide and all this kind of stuff. It just got worse, you know? So, um, I, I still have to look. I, I have the letter, but I still have to look for it. But I still haven't settled down anywhere yet. You know, I'm not in a place of my own. And it's been very difficult. You know, I, I've been wandering my whole entire life, you know, stealing food. I mean, I don't steal food anymore, but I still feel like I'm wandering. I still don't have a home to call my own you know, in a place where I can rest mm. my head, you know, and feel, and feel secure, you know, it, 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 it's yeah. horrible. Yeah. No, I, I can't imagine. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that when, when you were there, you were just, you were in constant survival mode, you know? I yeah. Still am. Yeah. And it's never left. I'm, I'm curious about what you think, why you think you guys just abruptly moved away from Toronto. And I'm wondering if her family was religious and maybe kind of rejected her because of what she was experiencing. No, 
No, I, I don't know. I think it was. Um, I think it was something. Uh, it was a family dynamic that happened, and you know, my mother became a Jehovah's Witness at that time. You know, and was a Jehovah's Witness, but got excommunicated. So you know, take that. You know, that was weird, but uh, you know it. Um, it was some sort of family dynamic because once we moved, no one ever came to see us ever again, you know, and then the kids, you know, because everybody had kids. My dad had uh, had six brothers and one sister, you know, six brothers and a sister, and they all had kids and, and my aunt had kids. And here's an interesting story. My aunt, who was the occultist, her daughter ended up hanging herself in the basement. And she had three mm. kids. Yeah. I found that found that out from my grandmother. So you can see that there's a demonic element that was going through the family and trying to destroy, you know, trying to destroy the family. And you know, ultimately, you know, they'd love to have you commit suicide because that's like the ultimate slap in God's face, you know, is to kill yourself, right. you know, saying that you know God's not enough, you know, He's not enough for me you know so but uh yeah tragedy there and um i'm assuming that it was some sort of family dynamic and still to this day and even like six months ago i try i tried calling some of my relatives on my mother's side nobody will talk to me and i haven't mm -hmm. got a clue why no one will talk to me you know? i would guess that uh just that connection, obviously, to your mom being her son and those those memories and those things. It's hard for people um, when they don't know how to deal with the situation. Most people just avoid, right? Like the police department, the doctors, like they don't know what to do, how to deal with it. So they just they avoid the situation, yeah. send her back home, you know, yeah. and avoid. And so. All the adults, all the adults kept them yeah. shut. And, you know, it's funny because all of us kids, now that we're all grown up, um, a lot of us kids, now that we're all in our 40s and 50s, you know, have talked about, you know, some of my cousins said, man, you disappeared. What happened to you guys? What happened? To you? We don't understand what happened. And I sent them my book and I said, here's my book. Everybody rejected me except for one, except for one cousin. We said, dude, I totally believe you. Totally believe you. We all knew something something weird was going on because we were never allowed to go see you, you know. And then they ended up moving to California, which is interesting because I ended up there yeah. too. But uh, where where was your dad yeah. after you did you keep in touch with your father after you moved? Yeah. Yeah, he's still alive. He's 87. He still lives in Ontario. Uh, we we actually have some sort of relationship in the, now, but we've never talked about it. We've never said a word to each other about it all these years. And, you know, fair to say, I, I can't do that to my dad now. He's 87. He's old. I don't want to bring up stuff that is flammable. You know, I just want him to live out the rest of his days and, and you know, know that his son cares about him and loves him and He's not saved, you know, and I, I, you know, worry about, in fact, I'm going to see him next, next, the end of next okay. week. So 
yeah that's nice so So, um michael i would love to to kind of wrap up this conversation with hearing about i mean from what it sounds like you're a believer so when did you become a believer and did you have any notion of like who jesus is at all growing up or is that something that you um did you uh kind of get exposed to to the lord in california later when you left yeah i'll tell you my testimony um my testimony happened when i was uh 20 23 i think i was i think i was 23 at the time my life was falling apart um uh, god knew that i'd never trust anyone's opinions you know, like having somebody, if somebody came up to me and said, and no one ever did, you know, you need Jesus, Jesus is your savior or something like that, I would have never listened. I would have never listened because me, my parents were erroneous. They weren't there for me. So how can anyone else have the slightest bit of, of, of a good advice for me? And that's kind of how I lived my life, at, you know, growing up. And when I was 23, my life completely fell apart. I was on a bus uh, in Ventura on Ventura Boulevard, and I was going down Ventura Boulevard right by Taft High School. For all you people from California that know where that is, on Ventura Boulevard, I cried out on a bus in front of forty or fifty people. Cried, I cried my eyes out on on the bus. People were looking at me, and I couldn't care less. And I cried out to the God, whoever God was. I said. I, I told I gave him like a cheesy sinner's prayer. I said, I, I said, forgive me for what I've done. You know, I I'm I need you in my life. My life's a mess. My life's a mess. And I'm not gonna say I heard a voice, but I had the most calming peace come over me. And when I got off the bus, I went to see my wife, who we were separated at the time, and I knocked on the door and I told her, I said, something just happened to me on the bus. And I, I told her to sit down. I said, something just happened to me on the bus. I don't know what happened to me on the bus, but everything's going to be okay. And she just kind of looked at me, you know, like I was crazy. And in the coming weeks, in the coming weeks, I rented. I had this all thirst. I rented Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. You know, it's like 13 hours or something like that. And I'm watching it. And my, my wife's in the kitchen and she's cooking. She's chopping vegetables. And he goes, he goes, I am the shepherd and the sheep know my voice. And I went, and I said, Sherry, Sherry, Sherry. I said, that's who I met on the bus. That's the voice I heard on the bus. He called to me. I said, that's the voice. And she was like, okay. I mean, her whole family thought I was nuts. And and then the week later, I I said, I want to go to church. I want to go to church. And my wife knew some friends that were Christians. And I said, could you tell us the church? He said, well, come to our church. And we were, we were at this church, and the guy said that you need to be born again. And I looked at Sherry, and you know, he told the story of, you know, of, you know Joseph of Arimathea, you know, don't marvel that you have to be born again. And, all this. and I, told, I told her, I said, that's what happened to me. That's what happened to me. I was born again, whatever that means. That's what happened to me. So I had this, like, Paul of Tarsus. Conversion. I never knew what born again meant. I never knew that 
that this shepherd calling out to sheep that they would know his voice. That was a real thing, you know? And I had this incredible, and I was like, because God knew that men's opinion and somebody telling me, I would never trust anybody's view. I would never trust, you know, anybody. So that's how he had to do it with me. He had to do it personally, you know? And to this day, I cannot deny the fact that he was the shepherd. He called to me. I recognized his voice and I received, I received and I became born again. I mean, I used to tell my wife, it's not different. I see things differently. I had no idea what born again meant. I didn't even know what that meant until years later. But I, to- but I told her when I heard the, the pastor talk about it, I said, that's what happened to me because my, I felt like my eyes were open, like, like something was lifted away. And that was my explanation to her. You know, and I've been able to give my testimony. Um, I actually gave my testimony in that church, which was filled with uh, like celebrities and actors and stuff because it was a church in, you know, in the Los Angeles area. And I haven't told my testimony in any other church since because one time I gave my, my testimony at a men's group and they told me no one has a, has a, has a story like that. You're, you're like, that's like Paul Atars. Nobody has a story like that. And they all laughed at me. So I've never told my, my testimony ever again, you know, in church, you know, I mean, I've told it to, to, you know, to interviewers, but I've never told my story in church because of that time. I felt so rejected. That's a bummer because, you know, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful testimony. I mean, just kind of juxtaposed to, your your upbringing um you know kind of reminded me a, a little bit of uh my grandmother's testimony she was she didn't grow up religious at all like not at all and my grandfather uh was kind of like he was like a hot rodder back in uh california like way back in the day and but all of his family were like missionaries and ministers church planters and um his uncle uh had planted a church in the town where they were living um i think i believe it was lake havasu california and um my grandma started going to i think it was like a wednesday night service and she she got saved but she didn't know what that meant and but when she when she got yeah. saved like she literally heard the angels like praising like she heard it when it happened and she got saved and um you know she she came home and she said he was sitting at the kitchen table just you know all angry and and you know probably probably drinking and and she i guess something was different about her she got saved right and she walks in and my grandfather's like you got saved didn't you and she said no she's like no well she said no because she had no idea she didn't know the term like she she didn't grow up in church you know no, she didn't yeah. know any of the the language or anything and uh yeah i'll just I'll, I'll never forget that you got saved didn't you she's like no no she told me she's like yeah. i didn't know what that meant so i didn't i wasn't denying the lord at that moment i just had no idea what getting saved meant well one thing one thing i can tell you that i learned from this whole ordeal is that and it took me years, decades to learn, was that I was always the, the target. It was never my mother. I was always the target. Because, you know, you've heard Gary Wayne speak and many others, and I've done the research on it, that God always pronounces his plan. You know, he always says, you know, this is what I'm going to do. 
tell the people what I'm going to do. And then Satan does his thing, you know, and after reviewing and writing my book and reviewing, you know, the history, I saw this, the schemes and I saw the tactics, you know, and I said, he's always after me. Wow. He's always after me. I'm the one because he knew that there's none of my family safe, zero. But I was the first one in my mother's, in my, uh, my wife's family. When I got saved, then my wife did, and then everybody else. Bing, 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 one after the other within months and years of each other. Well, praise God for that. You know? Yeah. So, but nobody on my side of the family, which is, you know, kind of heartbreaking. Mm. But uh, I, I, I knew that, that I was the, I was the. Person, That's beautiful. You know, it, it, I mean, it was so planned out, you know, isolated way up, you know, scare the sister out. You know, you know, have the dad way far away and just the kid. I mean, the divide and conquer. Yeah. I mean, those are military strategies, right. you know. Right. And that's what you. You know. You know. So I don't. I don't know the whole story that well, but like so much of what you said reminded me. Um, one of Chris and I's really good friends. Um, I won't say his name because he might come on and like share this story, but like he's told me before. Um, about a time when he was growing up in like very similar situation, like dad was far away or gone. Um, older siblings were older enough that they kind of were away as much as they could be away. But his older sister, I guess, had like played with a Ouija board or something. And then like some short amount of time later, there's a scene. And I don't remember if the mom was chasing the sister or the sister was chasing the mom. But that that scene you were describing of like someone chasing someone around with a butcher knife, like that happened in his home too. Um, and so just when you were saying that, I was like, wow, that's so like eerily similar, you know? Well, the enemy, the enemy wants a foothold in the door. And my mother, unfortunately invited, you know, because they have a right, you know, it's a biblical right. If, you know, that's why, that's why God, you know, in the old Testament said, said that anyone caught in, you know, doing necromancy, you know, will be stoned to death. Why? Because it works. <laughs> it works. That's why he said it, you know? Right. Yeah, like these you rules know? aren't so, just arbitrary or like, <laughs> no. and it's not because it's yeah. impossible. Someone said that on an episode a long time ago, but yeah, like these things aren't laws or rules because they're impossible. You know, like we don't have laws in our country. Right. Like you're not allowed to, you know, drive your car off a bridge and fly across, you know, it's like, anyway, yeah. laws are for things yeah. that are possible. <laughs> So for years I studied I studied every uh, demonic possession and exorcism case I could get my hands on, you know, from the 13th century on, well, from the Bible on, and um, you know the ones that are that are very documented where you hear, you know, where you have transcripts or audio, and I can tell the difference easily which ones are fake and which ones are real, because like I said, I know the speech. It's like you grew up with your mother tongue. You can be in a foreign country and then all of a sudden you hear your mother tongue and you're like, whoa, somebody just, you know, it's the same with me. I grew up listening to that speech and I know the gate. I know the gate. I, I didn't know what she was saying, but I could hear the gate, the tonal qualities. You know, there's there's the cadences, the nuances, you know, and when I hear it, when I hear it or read it in a transcript, I recognize it right away because they all say the same thing. They all say the same thing. Because they're fallen, they have nothing right. good to say. You know, their their speech, their thoughts, their nature is very confined to hatred and rebellion. That that's it. That's all there is. 
So they have certain speech patterns. And I wish somebody would do some sort of study on that, you know, because I can hear the gate. Like you can tell if somebody, if you from the South, and you can tell if somebody's from your region. Like my dad used to say, you know, oh, I speak like four different types of Italian. And I would be like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, one, one of my friends lives a half a mile away. And in his town, they speak a different dialect. And then my other friend over in, on the east side, he speaks another dialect. And he said, we would know each other by our dialect. And you'd be half a mile away, you know, and you would know each other. So when my dad, my dad runs into people in, in his, where he lives in Canada, and he runs into people from his town, and he recognizes their dialect. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, because you, because you I grew up, you grew up hearing it. Um, hey, hey, Michael, yeah, we've got to transition into our our members only uh, section of this. Um, if if you want to stick around for another twenty minutes or so, we we'd we'd be happy to kind of have you involved in that conversation if you'd like to stick around. Hey. They came down to top vanity, brought the proliferation of humanity. Ayy, fallen sons of the most high God took advantage of the planet he made, forming a holy alliance of evil and look at the daughters of Adam and Bane. That the flood rain came to restore.